we go. Mel, water, water, chaos, mighty, flow. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than any of my te all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from e every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Me too. I hate those wrong paths. Okay, let's see here. We'll read this day in history, Christian history. One year, the one-year book of Christian history, and today is not 15 September. It uh, must be 7 September. June. Yeah, I had the marker in September for some oh, reason, so okay. 7 June. Usually have it marked in advance so people oh, don't have to sit here and watch me shuffle through the through pages. The but faster. Yeah, I just think that's exactly right. I want to get through the summer faster. Yesterday was 6 June. Anybody? D-Day. D-Day, yes. Today is 7 June. All right, let's see here. Was the Israeli capture of the old city of Jerusalem predicted in the Bible? Oh, by the way, 7 June 1967 is the day. That's why they put this in here. 7 June 1967 is the day that Jerusalem was recaptured by the Israelis. So we're having a commemoration today. On June 7, 1967, a date dear to the heart of every patriotic Israeli, the army of Jerusalem captured the old city of Jerusalem. The army of Israel captured it. The previous month, the Egyptians had decided to attempt once more to conquer Israel. They poured 100,000 troops into the Sinai Peninsula, ordered UN peacekeepers out, made a military alliance with the neighboring Jordan. Israel felt its only hope was to launch a preemptive strike, which they're always blamed for, but when your back is up against the wall, it doesn't make any difference. So I don't care if it's preemptive or not, they had to do it, um, which it did on 5 June. Jordan and Syria immediately entered the war. Two days later, the Israelis captured the old city of Jerusalem, which had been part of Jordan as a result of this military victory in what was known as the Six-Day War. Israel once again possessed her ancient capital, it had been 1,897 years since the Romans conquered Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Jesus had predicted that Jerusalem and its temple would be destroyed. It says, um, he said, the time is coming when all these things will so be so completely demolished that no one stone will be left upon another, Luke 21, 6. When his disciples asked him, when, all this, when will all this take place, and will there be any sign ahead of time, Jesus answered, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will be brutally killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world, still in Luke 21. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he warned the Jews of God's coming wrath unless they repented. Matthew 3, verse 8. In response to the Jews crucifying their Messiah, God sent the Roman armies to conquer Galilee and Samaria, and then to surround and destroy Jerusalem. The attack began in AD 66 when the Jews rebelled following a theft from the temple treasury by the last Roman prefect. To quell the rebellion, the Romans sent four legions, which arrived the following year. After a siege, Jerusalem fell in AD 70. The Roman general Titus completely destroyed the city and temple. 
Jesus had also prophesied that following its defeat, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles comes to an end. That's Luke 21, 24. Does this mean that the age of the Gentiles, or as other translation put, translations put it, the times of the Gentiles ended on June 7, 1967, when the Jews gained control of Jerusalem? Revelation 11.2 seems to answer no. It states that the Gentiles will trample the holy city for 42 months. Apparently, the three and a half years prior to the second coming of Christ, implying that the Jews will not be in control of Jerusalem at that time. If this is the explanation is correct, the times of the Gentiles did not end on 7 June 1967. We have another confirmation that the times of the Gentiles didn't come to an end because we're all still sitting here and we're Gentiles, right? And we're believers in Christ. They will end at the second coming of Christ. June 7, 1967 was an extremely significant event in Jewish history, but it was not the fulfillment of prophecy. Reflection. When you read the unfulfilled pro prophecies of the Bible, do you believe that they will be fulfilled literally? Yes. The first coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled many prophecies, and his second coming will fulfill many more. And in 2 Peter 1:16, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. We have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. So, wonderful stuff. That was a great one, and it's surprising because this tends towards the Reformed theology, and yet they uh, acknowledge that the times of the Gentiles are not yet over, which is pretty wonderful. Anyway, um, one thing from Table Talk this month, I, I could have done a lot, but I just have just one. Um, they talk about spiritual blindness, blah, blah, blah. Let's see here. Their verse was, Jesus said, For judgment came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And he goes through his daily devotional, and towards the end, now this is Burke Parsons, who took over for R.C. Sproul. He's always done this. Um, it says here at the end, this is not at odds with his purpose to bring salvation, but it's secondary and necessary result. Talking about the issue he's talking about. Condemnation attends salvation, he says. Those who reject the dazzling light of Jesus as he is offered in the gospel are blinded to the things of God by his glory. Anybody? Can you read it? He says, those who reject the dazzling light of Jesus as he is offered in the gospel are blinded to the things of God by his glory. John Calvin comments, since Christ is by his own nature the light of the world, it is an accidental result that some are made blind by his coming. Well, the reason why I included this in here is because it implies that they made, a decision. they made the decision to reject him, which is exactly what he denies all the time. Always, he says that you have no choice in receiving Christ. And then he, he by going in the negative, the rejecting of Christ, you are uh, affirming the positive. You are affirming the positive. And there's no way of getting around it. We are given the choice to receive Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. We are not regenerated in order to believe. That is a false teaching. It is incorrect. And plus what he says here, just so you know, would imply something called double predestination, which is even they will not hold to. Double predestination says that God not only um, chooses the elect apart from free will, but he chooses who will be condemned and he actively condemns them. Remember I did the ducks? The first one is double predestination. It, God chose before he created anything that these people will go to hell. Unlike 
single predestination, which says God chooses the elect and he passes over those that he doesn't want. They go to hell, but he just passes over them. He doesn't actively send them. What he said here is a double predestination. It's a very, very sad theology, but there's no way of getting around it when you say stupid things like that. So just want you to know, I don't disagree with everything they say. I really like the ministry, but I, when they say something that crazy, it has to be called out. The rest of it, there weren't really any major theological errors. It was kind of a good month for him because sometimes I have pages of notes. But anyway, um, it, it, when somebody says something like that, they need to be called out. That's you, you can't let those kind of things stand because one, they're telling you you don't have free will. And then they say that you have free will to reject, it, which is, by the way, when he said they reject Christ's dazzling light, it's what I've said all along is that we, they say there's no good in man. And I will agree with that. That's the doctrine of total depravity. We are totally depraved. We are incapable of saving ourselves. There is no good in us apart from what God bestows upon us. Okay, I, I would agree with that. But we, being sentient beings that have a brain, we can see a good apple and we can see a bad apple and we can choose the good apple. The same thing is true with God. We see the goodness in God and we respond to that. He said they reject the dazzling light of Christ, which means that we can accept the dazzling light of Christ. Okay, so they're, they're, they play both sides of this because there's really no answer to reform theology on that. Yes. I was just going to ask, which ministry? Well, that's Table Talk, which is Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul, who's now dead, and it's taken over by Burke Parsons, and who was the associate pastor all those years, and now he's moved up into the lead pastor position. But it's just reform theology. It's just, you know, you go to a Presbyterian church, that's what you're going to hear. So anyway, and it's just wrong. It's wrong. The Bible does not support it. The verses are taken out of context, and there are only a few verses that they use, and they keep repeating them, despite other verses which completely show that what they are teaching is incorrect. But whatever. Um, one more thing here. While I'm looking for the next article of the Chicago Statement of Faith, uh, I'd like to add in prayers today. I, I can't give his name because I, I did not get permission. It was just an email, but it's something we should pray about. It's one of my friends uh, emailed me, and he said that he has a son who called, and he says, I'm getting married. Yeah, to a guy. So I, I just, he's on my heart today, and so we need to pray for him. It's very sad. He's really in distress over this. So yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine being a Christian and having your son call you and say that to you and expect you to say, okay, I accept that. Absolutely not. You know, the Bible does not allow us to accept that type of thing. So now he's got a real conflict in his life. All right, Article 9. We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true. How do we know that inspiration did not um, confer omniscience on the prophet or the apostle who wrote the, uh, the particular uh, passage? Because it says in the New Testament that they longed to look into the things that they had written. They longed to see what they had written. They, they, they read the words and they said, what does this mean? Okay, so go on. We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. It guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. When they wrote, it was inspired by God. They may not have understood what they were writing, but it is true. It is trustworthy. It is the word of God. We deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers 
which means, you know, Isaiah was a fallen man, right? Jeremiah was a fallen man. We deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers by necessity or otherwise introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. People will say he was a fallen person. He can't produce something that is infallible and it is inspired by God. Absolutely not. God will override that when necessary. What he wants is exactly what he wants, and he is using a human medium, even though fallen, in order to get his thoughts out on paper. Very well thought out there. And once again, the verse is, do you know that verse offhand? The uh, people long to look into these things. Um, uh, to Peter, I think, isn't it? But uh, let me check really quickly. We'll give it 15 seconds to see if we can find it. And if not, then uh, false prophets knowing first. Um, even angels, um, let's see here, speak, uh, da, 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 um, uh, not, that's not what I'm looking for. Let's see your device fables. Anyway, maybe it's one Peter. Okay. I don't see it. I'm not going to figure one and look, look at uh, 10. One Peter, one 10, uh, of this self. Yes. Of this very good of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Verse 11, searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you by those who had have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So they wrote these things. They had no idea why they wrote them. They were their ideas. They were their thoughts that were in their own words, and yet they were inspired by God to the point where they didn't understand the connection between what they had written and what uh, God was trying to tell them. They weren't given that probably, omniscience. Probably the best example of that, is, and I'm forgetting what book it is, so forgive me, but as soon as I say it, you'll know is when it was laying on this side for so long. Ezekiel chapter Ezekiel. four. Okay, so... Yep. What are you writing about? Yeah, he's writing about something he was told to do, but he has no idea what he was writing about. And it comes true 2,000 2, some years later. later. That's right. right. 2,700 years. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. That's very good. That's a perfect example because he was told to do something. He wrote it down, and yet he had no idea why he was told to do these things other than you were assigned to Israel. Well, what kind of a sign? He, he wasn't sure. So here we go. Romans chapter 11, verse 27. I'm going to start further... Oh, yeah, let's see here. We're in Romans. Just go back if you have a 25, paragraph. 25. 25. Okay. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brother, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. Who will turn godliness away from Jacob. Godless. Godlessness away from Jacob. Thank you. Very important. And then 27, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's funny you did that because when I typed, I, I'm so tired when I go home and, and it finally uploads to YouTube and I've got to, you know, I, I, I type in a title for it and the verses that we talked about on the Bible site, that's exactly what I typed in. He will turn away godliness from oh, Jacob. God. And Mike up in New Jersey oh. says to me, I think you made an error there. You need to get that correct. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just pushed. When I leave on Thursday... I'm done. I just I want to go home. I have no excuse. Uh, well, that's okay. We were thinking exactly the same thing. So, wow. Embarrassing. Okay, this is yes. the, another quote out of the Old Testament. Paul's already given one in verse 26 and now in 27. As with the preceding verse, 
This one needs to be taken in context. Let me read it. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It is tied directly to the thought of verse 26 and should be read as a whole. Here we go. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay. More than just a quote tied to another quote from a different passage of scripture as Paul does often. The citing of verse 27 follows directly after the previous quote from Isaiah 59, 20, and 21. So let me read you those just so you see what's going on. Isaiah 59, whoops, went too far there, Charlie, didn't I? 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit is who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Paul is stating that what was spoken to Isaiah was future to Isaiah's time. But even more, it was future to Paul's time as well. Got to understand that, okay? As Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and because his epistles are doctrine for the church age, then when I take away their sins must be yet future to us even now. National Israel will be delivered according to God's covenant with them. Everybody understand that? The church did not replace Israel. This is another implicit proof right here. If one reads commentaries from great scholars of the 17th through the 19th centuries, it is evident that they, long before Israel was reestablished as a national entity, felt that this was speaking of a future time of Jewish acceptance of Christ. A lot of Reformed theologians never came to this conclusion, but many of the people, the great scholars of, like I said, the 17th through the 19th century, did come to that conclusion. Albert Barnes felt that God, here's Albert Barnes' quote, God will doubtless convert the Jews as he does the Gentiles, by human means and in connection with the prayers of his people. He couldn't foresee this as an actual return to the land, nor an actual return of Jesus to them, but he understood that the Jews would be converted in a massive way in the future. Okay, Albert Barnes, he just couldn't even think that Israel would be back in the land. Right. It was barren, it was desolate. John Gill did, who was before Albert Barnes. Adam Clark did as well. Adam, uh, Albert Barnes didn't. All he could see was that somehow the Jews are going to be converted. The Christians are going to go and convert him, and they're all over the world. They're going to say, ooh, Jesus is our Messiah, okay? Adam Clark said that it may not be amiss to subjoin here a collection of those texts in the Old Testament that seem to point to a restoration of the Jewish commonwealth to a higher degree of excellence than it has yet attained. After stating this, he cites 32 Old Testament passages which he specifically applied to national Israel and which will be enjoyed by them in the future. He understood because the Bible teaches that the promises were never intended for the church. They were never intended for the Gentile-led church. The what? His word seems. Right shows or something you know absolutely right <laughs> yeah okay jameson fawcett brown states the following concerning this those who believe that there are no predictions regarding the literal israel in the old testament that stretch beyond the end of the jewish economy 
are obliged to view these quotations by the apostle as mere adaptations of Old Testament language to express his own predictions. But how forced this is, we shall presently see. That's Jameson Fawcett Brown. These scholars clearly understood that replacement theology is forced and it is unnatural. It is a contrivance of man. It is not of God. That's very important to understand because people love to push Reformed theology. The church has replaced Israel. If you look at the comments on some of these uh, Bible studies that are online, you will inevitably at times get a replacement theologian who will come on there and they'll start belittling our doctrine, dispensationalism. There is an Israel of the future. The people in the land have a purpose, etc. They get on there and they're very belligerent. They're an angry bunch of people. They're not nice. You know, if I go in, I correct one of them on one of their sites, I'll be nice. They are not. I got to tell you what, when they come there, they have the sole aim of being angry people that just want to shut people up because they have literally a hatred of the Jewish people of today. And the reason why is because it blows away all of the theologians that they have held to so faithfully, like John Calvin, etc. And they don't want to hear that. And so instead, they harden their own minds and their own hearts against what is so obvious and what these scholars of the past, long before Israel was reestablished, could clearly see. That replacement theology is forced, it is unnatural, it is not of God. Okay, so um, the list of such scholars continues on with the common element among them that they believed in a literal interpretation of these passages. The main principle concerning such an interpretation is, if a passage can be taken literally, then it should be taken literally, unless there is a compelling reason for it not to be so taken. That is the first. I mean, when you go to a class on hermeneutics in college, which is how to properly interpret the Bible, that is like the first thing that they say. This book is to be taken literally, unless it cannot be taken literally you take it literally. That's that's what they are to do. And as I showed a couple weeks ago, replacement theologians have to actually take parts of a verse and say, that's literal, that's not, that is, and that's not in a single verse. It's crazy. But, you know, they, they violate their own first rule of hermeneutics doing that. But anyway, uh, let's see here. Unfortunately, though this is a principal element of biblical interpretation, and even though there is absolutely no no compelling reason for dismissing a literal interpretation of Romans 11, 26, and 27. Far too many people simply dismiss the passage as spiritual. This is a spiritual application. He's speaking about the church having you know, all of these crazy things. And this inexcusably continues on even after the miraculous return of Israel, the people to Israel the land. And as I said, there's a reason why. It's because once they acknowledge that that group of people there belongs there, all of their theology is bad. So they start making stuff up. They start making up lies about the Jews that are there in the land today. They make up lies about this. They make up lies about that. Everything suddenly becomes conspiracy. It becomes uh, divert attention away from the reality of what is happening in this world. It's very sad. People, they do not want to, yeah, they, they just don't. They don't want to acknowledge that they were wrong. Yeah, it's pride. That's what it comes down to almost always. When you have something in theology and you realize, now I will admit, when I'm doing a sermon, I will often come to a passage and I'll think, wow, that's completely contrary to what I've been teaching. And I'll think, and I'll think, am I wrong on that? You know, you know and the first thing I do is try to defend in my own mind why I could be right instead of, you know, could I be wrong? You can't do that. You got to set everything aside and you got to go where the Bible says. 
And that's happened a couple times in Esther, and they've always been reconciled within a couple verses. But when you go verse by verse, I might spend an hour on a single verse. You've got to figure um, this week is 17 verses, and it took about eight or nine hours to type. So how long is that per verse? But um, sometimes one verse might take two minutes. Very simple. The words in Hebrew are all basic. But then another verse may, might take a full hour. To, and I'm thinking about it, and then I get two verses down, and I say, oh, well, there's the answer to that. So, you know, but you got to go where the word is telling you to go. You, you have to do that. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, this continues on even after the miraculous land, uh, returning the people to the land. Their current state of disobedience is irrelevant. I say that every single week in the prophecy update. Israel's not right with the Lord. That is irrelevant to the fact that God has placed them back in the land. Irrelevant. He has sovereignly chosen to put them back in the land of Israel for his own purposes. And so we will fight against God when we do not support what he is doing. It doesn't mean that we have to coddle them and say, I'm fully supportive of Israel and everything they're doing. If they're teaching homosexuality and they have homosexual mayors exactly the way the Old Testament had them, the way they have in the dispersion, and now they're doing it in the land of Israel, we need to call them out on it. We don't just give them carte blanche and say what is happening in America is appalling, but what's happening in Israel is ordained by God. We don't do that. But we understand that they are back as a people into the land for God's purposes. Okay, so there's you have to be circumspect in both approaches to the people of Israel. Okay, he is working in the world, meaning God, preparing them in advance for the fulfillment of these sure promises. They are not fulfilled in their return in 1948 as a nation. They are not fulfilled in the, the recapture of Israel, I'm sorry, Jerusalem in 1967. It's not correct. And as we saw, somebody very wisely cited um, Revelation 11, verse two, which says, go measure the uh, temple in verse one, I think, and it says the outer court, that's left to the Gentiles, right? That was very wisely said that this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles is not over yet, okay? Life application. Romans 11 is to be literally interpreted. Accept and believe. Verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Okay, that, that couldn't be any clearer. I mean, if you read that and you were not given any theology at all, you were said there's a group of people named Israel... Here's their history. Here is the church. And you just gave the, the basics and nothing else. Any person would read that and they would say, that is speaking of the church, right? Mm -hmm. No way. Ah, very good. It is speaking of Israel. Concerning the gospel, they are your enemies for your sake. Okay? That is speaking. Yes, it's speaking of us in the first one. So, yes. But the gospel... It says, concerning the gospel, they, meaning Israel, are enemies for your sake. So we've got them both in there. But yes, it's speaking to us about Israel. Absolutely. But concerning the election, it's obviously speaking of Israel there. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God has not. And remember, if you haven't watched it, I bring it up again and again, because it is the most crucial passage in the Old Testament to understanding why Paul is writing these things. It's Leviticus 26. We went through that. If you haven't watched that sermon, you will not fully understand 
the uh, what Paul is saying in Romans, and you will misinterpret it if you've been raised in a, a replacement theologian church or theology church, unless you watch the sermon on Leviticus 26. It's there are three sermons I did on it. The last one was verses probably um, yes 40 through 46. If you take those verses and you watch that sermon, you will understand very clearly what he is saying right here in Romans 11:28 concerning the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ concerning that they, Israel, are enemies for your, the church, sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. He's speaking of election, election, election. Go back and watch the, the um, what do you call it, the uh, Bible study on election, divine election. It's one of them. Go back and read the titles and you'll come to it. That's what you want to watch. What does election mean? They are elect. They are cut off. We've already seen that branch is broken off, but they are the elect people of God. Okay. Someday they will be back in God's favor. They will call on Jesus Christ. They will be saved as a nation and individually all who have called on Jesus Christ as well. Hasn't happened yet. Just full of I wills. God saying I will. I will. That's right. I will. That's right. It's not up to Israel. It has nothing. As I said in my last, um, uh, where is it? Uh, uh, the, their current state is of disobedience. This is the last verse I looked at. The covenant was from God, and therefore it is inviolable. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where Israel is at with the Lord right now. He has made a promise, I will, and that will stand, despite what anybody else says, 100%. Okay, so concerning the gospel, because of their rejection of the good news, meaning Israel, as is evident from the preceding verses, it is determined that they are enemies for your sake. That's what Paul says there. As Paul is writing to the church, church the Gentiles, right? He is the apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles, yes. This tells us that the bond of fraternal love found in Christ is severed towards those who reject him, including those from his select and special group of people. The spiritual bond is severed. Their selection is noted, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Let me go back there and read that to you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. And this is just one of many examples. But the what? I love you. It's not because you're a big butt people. Right. You're the smallest, and I love you. <laughs> it says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And then verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples. Verse 8, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, so we've got that. However, on another level, that of election, Paul goes on to say that they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fathers are those to whom the promises were made. They include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Israel. If one considers Paul's use of fathers as the same concept as the patriarchs, then this would also include King David, believe it or not. King David is called in the book of Acts a patriarch, who is, oh yeah, Acts 7, verse 8, if you want that reference. This verse seems internally contradictory, but enemies is being used in opposition to beloved, 
to show a distinction between the two, which is reflected on different levels. Let me read it again. Think of that. Okay, they're being set in opposition to each other. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Okay? They're being set uh, uh, in opposition. They are cut off from the holy tree for the purpose of corporate blessing, and yet they are still viewed with an end purpose in mind. God will continue to keep them as a people as he has covenanted with them. That's in Leviticus 16, verse 44. It says, I think it should be 26, verse 44. Excuse me, let me pen and ink that because I know it's not 16. Leviticus 16 is Day of Atonement. Yeah, so that's 26 here. Let me make a little pen and ink there. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. Okay? Doesn't matter what they do, he will not break his covenant with them. They may fall away, he will not. Now, it does matter what they do in the sense that he will punish them, he'll exile them, spiritually break that connection, but he will never forsake them completely. The contents of Leviticus 26, 14 through 43 shows that God in no way approves of their conduct during their time of exile. Okay? He's very clear about it. But that the covenant bond, verse 2644, which I just read you, is stronger than the consequences of their disobedience. Extreme as those consequences may be. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen the Holocaust, right? They only have themselves to blame. This is why, and I've said this in a couple prophecy updates. I say it to one of my friends over in England a lot. I get so tired of them using the Holocaust, um, you know, like we can't say anything bad about what they're doing in the world because the Holocaust happened. It's as if that set us apart and we are completely free from any chastisement because of that. When they do something wrong, they need to be called out on it. When they appoint gay mayors, they need to be called out on it, etc. And as I said, and I've said this many times in prophecy updates and in this Bible study, but I'll repeat it again. When mom and I were in Israel in 2003, we went to Yad Vashem. It's wonderful that they have a memorial for their Holocaust. They remember it every year on Holocaust Day. Everything stops. Every car in the nation, wherever they are on the highway, stops. And everybody takes a, a moment and they reflect everywhere. That's wonderful that they do that. You know, we've got times that we remember. We've got Memorial Day and we've got Veterans Day and, and uh, all of those other things. We do things like that as well. It's good to remember. But that does not exempt them from their guilt. And when we were in Israel, in Yad Vashem, we walked around, saw all of the terrible things that they have on display for them to look at and for the world to look at. And when I came out, I said to mom, there's one thing that's missing from this, this memorial, one thing that I would change. I would take a copy of Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26, because they just, they parallel each other. And I would publish it in every single language where the Jews have been dispersed around the world. And I would put it on the front door because it says, this will happen to you. This that happened to you will happen to you because you have turned from the Lord, your God. We can't hide the fact that it would not have happened if they were obedient to the Lord. The Lord will not take a lampstand from a church that is obedient to the Lord, will he? Absolutely not. But when they're disobedient to the Lord, what does it say? I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. You are no longer my people. We can do the same thing with Israel. I get tired of them beating the Holocaust over the rest of the world instead of internally reflecting on what they have done, rejecting the Lord. We're in the book of Esther right now. Wait until you hear this week's sermon. Esther 4, 1 through 17. What does it say? Unseen and unacknowledged. 
What does that mean? Who is that speaking of? Who do you think it's speaking of? Yeah, put him in the dugout. The Lord's in the dugout. You can't see him, and so we don't talk about him, right? Gotta be, we, we have to be careful when we speak about guilt, because when we say we're not going to hold any guilt over Israel anymore, that's the same thing as us saying we're not going to hold ourselves guilty anymore either. The churches can do whatever they want, and that's not true. Like I said, it's a one-to-one -one ratio. Israel gets chastised for disobedience. The church will lose its lampstand, and it will be chastised for disobedience, or it'll be completely cut off, which is where we're at with most of them. That day when they remembered, I, I saw a picture of the highway, and these people got out of their vehicle. That's right. And stood beside them. Absolutely. Whatever that is, two minutes or whatever it is. Yep. All over the nation. Yeah. Everything stops. Every single thing in the nation stops, and I'm glad they do that. But I wish that they would think, why are we doing this? What has brought us to the point that got us there? Because I love Israel. They're, they are my last prayer every single night. Every night of my life, they are my last prayer. Lord, open the eyes of Israel. Now, I'm sorry that they went through the Holocaust. I'm sorry that the pogroms ha happened. I hate looking at these photos of the people being shot. It, you know, it, it's terrible. But guess what? It would not have happened if they were obedient to the Lord. He guaranteed that it wouldn't. He guaranteed it. So we, we can't, we have to be fair in our evaluation of these things. Anyway, um, uh, the covenant bond is stronger than the consequences of their disobedience. That's what got me onto that. Extreme as those consequences may be. To be sure, God does not possess changing human emotions as we do. Rather, these terms are applied to him who is unchanging to show exactly that. His character, speaking of God, the Lord, his character does not vacillate as we move in relation to him. There is no change in God at all. He will never change in his being. He is, I am who I am. Genesis or Exodus three verse 14, thank you. Um, Malachi 3.6. Uh, yes, that's right. I change not, I, the Lord your God do not, I, the Lord your God do not change, that's right. Regardless of whether the church is now in God's favor and Israel is currently an enemy, according to Paul, for the sake of the gospel, it is unthinkable that those promises made to his chosen people should ever be revoked or fail. They will never, never be revoked and they will never fail or be replaced, by the way, by another group. Not going to happen. We can't say, well, they're out and we're in, and he's speaking of us spiritually. Absolutely not. Go back and watch the Leviticus 26 sermon. Now, you can deny what I say there, but you're denying what is obvious, and which is signed, guess what, by L-O-R-D, the Lord himself. So what he has promised to Israel must stand, and in fact, it will stand. Life application. When you called on Jesus, why is that important? Before I finish up on give you my life application, why is it important that God's promise to Israel because he has a promise with us too. That's exactly right. He's got a promise with every single one of us individually. Little Israels, and I'm not saying that we are Israel, I'm saying we're just in the same boat. I have promised that I will save you. If he would take away his salvation after sealing us with the Holy Spirit, what kind of a promise? What kind of a guarantee is that? Keeps. Yeah, he will keep you. God is not a man that he should lie. Not. He's not a man that he should boast. Has he not said and will he not do it? Will he not do it? And how much more when he says, let's read it again, because so many people stumble over this doctrine. It is the largest stumbling point, I think, of Christians in the world today. Because we all screw up. We all make mistakes. We all have our problems. And then there are people that are telling us that problem will separate you from God. Okay? Once again. 
Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I could give you a hundred verses on eternal salvation, but these here are, they're as clear as they could be. In him, in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. You heard the word of truth, you trusted. That's what he just said, right? The gospel of your salvation. Does it say the gospel of your condemnation? No, it's your salvation. You are saved. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your salvation, in whom also, having believed, I believed. It doesn't matter what happens after this point. It does not matter what happens after this point, because at this point, whenever it is, 20 years ago or 50 years ago, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You believed that message, and he sealed you. If he sealed you when you believed and said, I am guaranteeing you the gospel of your salvation, and then he takes that away, then he is the one that made a mistake. He sealed you, and yet he made a mistake in doing that. God does not make mistakes. Okay, secondly, the next verse. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the Aravon, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? Okay, the guarantee. What kind of a guarantee is it if he takes it away because you did something? Then it was never by grace through faith anyway. If he, yeah, a crummy one. If in fact he takes it away, then that means that you had to do something in order to be saved in the first place because it doesn't matter if you're saved here or here or here or here. We'll just go to the very beginning though. Eight years old and you're saved and you go through your whole life and you do something that you walk away from. You say, I don't want to be saved anymore, whatever. Whatever it is, all the way through your life. It doesn't matter. He saved you by grace through faith here. It was not of works. If you had to do something here, then it was of works because works is involved the entire process of the rest of your life. So it was never by grace through faith. And that is a lie. So eternal salvation, if you disagree, disagree without emailing me about it. Okay, if you have a verse you're confused about, I will send you an answer to that verse. But don't send me just you're wrong on this because it's not. The word is correct and the word says that you are sealed and God doesn't make mistakes. So it is a done deal, okay? And that's why this is important. What he said is exactly right, because if his promise to Israel fails, then his promise to you will also fail. It will fail because you will fail. And I guarantee you, every one of us has failed since we met the Lord, okay? And so we have unsaved ourselves. No, it doesn't happen that way. Okay, um, so where are we? Life application. When you call on Jesus, the Bible says that you, oh, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Just as God will never reject his people, even when disobedient, he will never reject you. See, I got ahead of myself. I should have just read this. Even if you fall from whatever position of obedience to his word that you once held, in the end, rewards and losses will result based on your conduct, but your salvation will never again come into question. It cannot, because if it was at any point, at any point, then it was not of grace through faith. It was of works. It is an entire deal. You are saved by grace through faith, and you are saved by grace through faith. Anything that you have to do in order to keep being saved means that you were not saved by grace through faith in the first place. Okay, 11.29. Boy, we're just burning it up today. And how appropriate. For God's gifts and his call are... Irrevocable. Thank you. Wonderful. Oh, see? It just one thing leads to another. In context, this verse is speaking of Israel's national election, not individual matters concerning God's people. Everybody got that? He's been speaking about Israel, their national election. 
national, not individual, national election. Because they, even though Israel is elect, they are out right now. Their branch is broken off. And that brings us back to the picture of the branches being broken up. Remember, I said that is a corporate breaking off. Gentiles are grafted in. The Jews are broken out, off. They're still elect of God, just as he says, but they are broken off. Therefore, it cannot be individual salvation, which is being talked about there. Right. As I said during there, I said this uh, during one of the uh, uh, times when I was talking, we are little individual branches that are grafted in, and we will never be broken off as an individual. But he's speaking about corporate salvation, and he's speaking about first Israel, then the church. Okay, so... Um, Go, and that this just confirms that, okay? That's what I'm saying. It's 1129 just confirms that. The context is Israel's national election, not individual matters of uh, God's people in salvation. The word for gifts here, charisma, is also applied to individual gifts throughout the New Testament. Such, as, such gifts include spiritual gifts given by God to his children for the benefit of the church. Ministry, wisdom, healing. The term calling is likewise used elsewhere when speaking of the calling of individuals. The invitation extended to come and partake of his salvation. So we have a calling and we've got the gifts. Those are pertain at sometimes to individuals. Okay, it is true that such gifts and calling may be irrevocable towards the individual as we just talked about. However, this is not the context of verse 1129. And so the context should be maintained. It would be a stretch to use this verse as a standalone to justify eternal salvation of the believer or surety of maintaining the gifts which have been bestowed. In other words, I have heard people say that this is a verse which says, see, God's gifts and calling are irrevocable, and they use that as uh, eternal salvation, etc. It's not a good verse for that. You know I preach eternal salvation because it's what the Bible says, but this is not a verse you would use, and the reason why is because he is speaking about the corporate Israel. Yes, he's not speaking about individuals. So even though it sounds good for eternal salvation for the individual, we shouldn't use it for it. You have to keep things in context. Okay, so... Are those gifts free? Gifts free, yes. Gifts are thank you. <laughs> he's making a joke. In case you've never watched this before, when it says free gifts, that's a redundancy. A gift is a gift. When, when Bible say it's a free gift, that just that's one of my pet peeves there. Just drives me up a wall. Anyway, uh, and then once in a while I'll be talking, and because it's been I've heard it so many times, I will say free gift, and then I kick myself real hard. Um, oh, speaking of free gifts, the reason why I have beads in my beard, just in case uh, somebody online is saying, "What is that guy?" My daughter's in town. When my daughter is in town, she loves to put beads in dad's beard. So there you go. That's why I have beads in my beard. She's in charge. She's so no. She yeah, it's free. Yeah. That's right. That's the, back to the point. That's right. This was a free gift. Although the beads I bought years ago. So and I've they've been, been in a box about waiting. Thanks for a half hour. They what? I've been wondering about. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You've been here for an hour and a half. You should have said something. Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, that's my daughter. She she's always dandying me up. But you know what I used to do? I used to have bullets big long 22 long oh rifle bullets God. and i drilled out the end so that and no. yeah and I, i'd wear them around there in my beard right but she said to me can i have these bullets taken back with me i said you better not i mean the the uh, charge is actually drilled out of the back of it it's just a piece of brass but i could see you know the people on the airplane saying you're being arrested for having yeah. crazy liberals are insane but yeah there's it, it, it's it's a hollow tube that's all it is it's a hollow brass tube but why? it's shaped why? because liberals are insane that's why oh so, just to get somebody yeah they, uh, she they'd say well, you've got bullets no, in I'm your talking about why did you wear 
Well, oh, because it looked great. Bullets, you know, they're you shaped nice. Beard? Yeah, I had bullets in my beard. It was he great. Military. Yeah, yeah military. military. It's my old military. Anyway, so yeah, I, I made all kinds of, you know, I took uh, stuff. Um, anyway, I've got all kinds of beats that I made myself, but the uh, the bullets were my favorite. Anyway, um, back to uh, the Bible. Where were we? Romans eleven twenty nine. Irrevocable. Yes. Oh, yes. So, um, um it would be a stretch to use this for individual salvation. Rather, such concepts must be found elsewhere to support these tenets. So don't use this as an eternal salvation verse, please. Only if such is the case, and it is, can the wording of Romans 11.29 be applied to individual matters. Okay, Paul has been speaking of the covenantal promises made to Israel. In this, God has spoken, and therefore the thing he has promised, he will fulfill. Leviticus 26 will be held true for all of eternity, okay? Regardless of their obedience or disobedience, he has spoken. He will never entirely cut Israel off from being a people or from receiving his graces. They have called, they have been called, and therefore the calling stands regardless of their conduct, okay? I'm going to speak about that at the beginning of the sermon on uh, Sunday as well. That's just something that's obvious concerning the context of chapter four of Esther is that doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all what Israel does. He will not change in his promises. And that's the good thing about God, because it doesn't matter what we do. God has promised he is going to save us and we will be judged. Be a seed of Christ. And imagine the horror. Imagine the horror of standing up before the Lord and saying, I just gave up. And, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're saved and you're standing there for your judgment and you think, he saved me. He went to the cross for me. He did all of this for me. And I just walked away from him. Right Now, I will tell you something. I, I, I have always wondered when I was saved. Okay, And I, I've always thought that it was when I was about 13 years old. I was in the Datsun B210, a yellow Datsun B210. We went to the tabernacle. Uh, Lady Glenda, whose husband owned the surf shop, and she took me there. And on the way home, she led me through a profession in Christ. And I told everybody about Jesus for the longest time, right? And But I, I just forgot because there's no training in the Bible. I never went to a church again where they opened the Bible and they taught doctrine. So I had no doctrine, right? And so the rest of my life, up until I was 36, I was just doing what I was doing. I, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian and whatever I'm doing is okay because this is why we read the Bible is to get the rest of your life right. Well, there was none of that, okay? So my friend Chris who was my neighbor this past week called me. I haven't talked to him in 20, 25 years or something. And um, he called me, he emailed me. He says, hey, you got time to talk? I said, yeah. And so we started talking and he says, you know, you're the one that led me to Christ when I was like 15 years old. And I'm like, what? So anyway, I always tell people I was saved at 36 and I know I was saved at 36, but I've always wondered, and this is as far as, you know, you just don't remember when you do things. You just go through life and you don't think about them. But I've always had this thing in my head. I bet you I was saved when I was 13, but I don't tell people that because I was really crummy from 13 until 36. <laughs> and even after 36, I've been a real, not a very nice guy. So anyway, uh, but he said that to me. He said, yeah, you gave me my first Bible. You wrote out the Lord's Prayer for me. I still have it in my Bible today. Everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. He will use even a, an idiot like me with hair down to here and a surfboard under my arm and thinking of nothing about, yeah, anyway. You're okay. not alone in that. I know, there's a lot of no, people. Yeah, but you know what? Teenagers typically. They get saved and they walk away. That's right, but the Lord doesn't forget. And that's the thing about the Lord. Let's go really quickly because this verse came to mind 
when he said that to me, I've read it in this class several times, but I'm going to read it again because this is the first thing that came to my mind when he told me that. It says um, uh, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, and I'm just going to take you down to verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, speaking of all the things you're supposed to do, meaning get doctrine, go to church, learn the Bible after you're saved, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful, which was me for from 13 until uh, 36 is uh, 23 years, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I didn't have any other than what I was originally told, which was very little. For he who lacks these things, Charlie Garrett from 13 until 36, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. As soon as he said that to me, I said, ah, I have no doubt that I was saved, that I was on the right path, and I just had forgotten it after all those years. I had walked away completely, but the Lord didn't. So there you go. That answers the question after all these years, because I've always thought, you know, I wonder if I was saved that night, and I, he said, man, you were on fire. He told everybody about uh, Jesus, and I don't I even remember so that. Cool well, that up, uh, yeah, it was. How, how long has it been since Probably 25 years. Wow. Yeah, we're friends on Facebook, but he just, he just emailed me, and right out of the blue, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. And so I, I called him right back and his phone didn't work. So he got on a landline and we talked there. Cell phones, man, I hate those things. Anyway, um, so we got talking and his sister, who I never thought would get saved, is saved. She lives right here in Sarasota. The older sister we need to pray for. And uh, anyway, marvelous, marvelous stuff. Let's go on. We're, we're getting, you know, huh? that is part of the Great Commission in Matthew 20. Oh, yeah. You said, and teaching them to teaching them all things. that's the thing you and know, that's why we discipleship need after salvation. discipleship and people just dismiss that that is as far as i'm concerned that is as important as anything else it's in the it's in the same verse go out and make disciples right i mean get them saved and then disciple them and if they don't all those years of wandering around doing the stupidest things on this planet not pursuing jesus but i can i can see grace what's that Picking up very bad theology and, you know, but I can see grace so much more because I have those intervening years. I can really, really appreciate God's grace because otherwise, I, you know, I'm just whatever. Anyway, okay, so um, uh, life application. Like Israel, who continuously failed to live out their calling and yet has never been cast off, we will also at times fail to live out our calling. I'm testament to that, apparently. However, the Bible fully supports the notion of eternal salvation. Truly, like national Israel, the individual gifts and calling are irrevocable when we are in Christ. As I said, don't use that verse for, for individual salvation. It's not a good verse because the context demands it. It's speaking of corporate Israel. However, okay, it is a truth nonetheless, okay? Romans 11.30. Wow, we're going to be done with Romans 11 soon. Yeah, look at that. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. Okay, this is speaking of the Gentiles, and then it's speaking of the Jews. Okay, once again, it cannot be, it cannot be that he is speaking about two replacement theologians about replacing Israel. If you just look at the words and think of it, he's speaking of two completely different entities. For as you were once disobedient, we can't be Israel because he's speaking to Gentiles, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Once again, what faulty theology to say that we are the Israel of God. 
what absolute faulty theology to say that. If you take each verse and you simply look at the words, okay, 1130. Romans 1130 verse 32 are what are known as mercy verses. Four times in three verses, the concept of God's mercy is revealed in his dealings with man. The section, the section begins with four, which means that it cannot be separated from the previous thought, but instead it explains it. Let me go back and read it. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Four, so it's explaining what he just said, the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, he's explaining further, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He's explained that, and now he's saying that they are in a state of disobedience. And while they are in a state of disobedience, you have been granted mercy. Everybody see the logical pro progression? Okay. We have been shown the state of the Jewish people in relation to the Gentiles concerning both the gospel and election. They are enemies of God in one respect. No doubt about it. He says it very clearly, but beloved by him, meaning God, in another. The reason for this is that regardless of their state of obedience, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. It is the promise to the fathers, his unchanging promises, which can never be nullified in any way, shape, or form. It's because of that. In the United States, there is a law. We call it the U.S. Constitution. It's also a ship up in New York Harbor, by the way. The U.S. Constitution. The office of president is defined in this law, isn't it? Right? If somebody's going to check and they're going to email me and they're going to say it's in Boston Harbor. I know. Whatever. It's it's somewhere up in that area. Okay? Anyway, if a president... It, I, it's funny how people catch on to things like that and they, they will send me an email. Within minutes of getting home, I check my emails and there's something saying, ha! I love that though because I learn. You know, I say things and I'm hoping that it's New York Harbor, but maybe it's Boston. Whatever. Anyway, um, is defined in this law. If a president adheres to the precepts of that office, then he is a friend of that law. Everybody got that? Yeah. Did we have a friend of that law in the previous president? Absolutely not. He was an enemy of the U.S. Constitution. Right. Now, I'm making this for a reason, and I'm going to apply it to what we're studying in the theology. Right now, we have a person who I believe is a friend of the Constitution. I don't think he's done anything unconstitutionally um aligned you know he he's not a friend of people on twitter i can tell you that but he, he so far has been a friend of the u.s constitution he has upheld it did anybody see his speech a day ago where he talked about the black guy that was in prison and the white guy that imprisoned him and they became great friends after the guy became a christian in prison he got a bible and trump said jesus he said god he said salvation he brought in billy graham having been a minister that he heard it was it was like listening to a preacher give a sermon it was five minutes long you can watch it on facebook i meant to post it today and then i forgot it is outstanding he brings up god the gospel he brings up jesus all the way through this and then he says and uh, he says unlike the last two or three years where nobody said merry christmas and he, he did a it was it was really like a mini sermon it was very wonderful yes if anybody wants that and they are on facebook and you can't find it let me know and i will email it to you it was a uh, it was like a Fox News thing out in the uh, the, the Rose Lawn, in place of the garden, the football team that was supposed to come. Maybe, 
And they it might have been. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was really yeah. good. Make sure you watch it. it yeah. You'll just go, yes. Okay. Anyway, um, so here we go. Um, we have been shown uh, U.S. Constitution. If he fails to adhere to it, he is an enemy of the law. If you've got a president that adheres, he's a friend. If he fails to adhere, he's an enemy of that same law. Everybody got that? Okay. The law hasn't changed. Same law. It's the same U.S. Constitution. But he has changed in relation to it. Crummy president, good president. We'll do the left. Crummy president, good president, okay? Right? The law hasn't changed. He has changed in relation to it. However, this doesn't mean that all presidents will be enemies of the law. There is a process for electing presidents and removing presidents, right? We all know that. That's part of the law as well. For the sake of the presidency, the office of the president is beloved. Does everybody see that? Keep thinking of Israel. Keep thinking of God in relation to Israel. I'll say that again. For the sake of the presidency, the office of president is beloved. The Constitution says we love that we are going to put this in here. This is the office of the presidency. It is a good thing, okay? Even if the current president is crummy. Everybody got that? The Constitution still says that the office is valid, even though this president filling that office is no good. He's a rotten apple or a rotten fig we would use from the Jeremiah symbolism. This is somewhat like what is going on with Israel. And this is what the four in Romans 11:30 is explaining. For you were once disobedient to God. That's the Gentiles, okay? It is speaking of us. There was nothing to draw them close to God. They had inherited their first father's sin and there was no covenant to bring them into a binding relationship. Only Israel had such a mark of distinction, right? Everybody got that. God called out this single group of people. Outside of them, God in bygone generations, this is Acts 14, verse 16, bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Everybody got that. He's made a constitution here. Everybody else is walking in their own ways, okay? However, because of Christ, the Gentiles could be brought near to God in a new way. We were once disobedient to God, yet now obtained mercy through their, meaning Israel's, disobedience. Everybody see that? Okay. The Jewish people as a whole were disobedient to the new covenant, which is found in Christ. There is now a new covenant. The old covenant, they're still beloved because of the patriarchs, and we'll get to that. Okay. But the new covenant they rejected, which is Christ, the fulfillment of the old covenant desiring to remain under the old. That's what they've done. Remember I gave the example a few, maybe a couple months ago of the island and everybody has ways of getting out to the island, all right? And the Jews just wanted to stay on the ship called the USS Law and they stayed out in the ocean and they kept fixing the ship. They kept working on the ship and they never got to the island, right? That's what was going on there, okay? They desire to remain under the old. Let me read you Luke 5, Luke 5, hang on. Oh, got to go back further. Acts is after Luke, Charlie. Okay, Luke 5. And then we'll go to 36 through 39. Let's see here. Luke 5, 36. It says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece, uh, puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does ma not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins, or else the new wine will burst. The wine skins will be spilled, 
and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk the old wine immediately desires the new, for they say the old is better, right? Okay, that's what he's trying to make a, an example for them. But the old only pointed to the new, and so by rejecting the new, the curses of the old came upon them. All the curses, Leviticus 26, remember we did that, and I was almost in tears at times reading those. We're going to go through Deuteronomy 28 eventually if the Lord hasn't come by then. It's going to be the same thing. It's horrifying. As a matter of fact, the, the detail in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 28 is actually worse than Leviticus 26, especially when a woman is giving birth and what she's going to do. I, it, it's horrifying. It, the words are literally horrifying to read, okay? But this is what the Lord said is coming upon them for their disobedience, okay? The curses of the old came upon them. During this time of disobedience, they had one exile, which was for how many years? 70 years up to Babylon, right? They didn't listen the, sec the second time. And he says in Leviticus 26, you don't listen the first time, I'm going to punish you for your sins seven times over. Seven times seven is only 490 years, but they were gone for 2,000 years. How do you reconcile that? That passage that you mentioned from Ezekiel chapter four, lie on your side for this long, lie on your side for that long, came out to a total of 430 days. Take off those 70 years, you come out with 360 days left or 360 years. Multiply that times 70, you come out to three 2,520 years from the time of the original exile right up until the time of the regathering of the people in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, Israel in 1948. It's exactly, according to the Bible, exactly precise, 907,200 days, and God kept their promise and he put them back in the land. And then exactly 19 years later, after the original exile, Jerusalem fell, right? Well, guess what? 19 years later, after the original reestablishment, Jerusalem was recaptured, 907,200 days later. It is astonishing how precise the word of God is. Anyway, you go back and watch the old prophecy update number 88, and you can learn that if you don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so that's what's being spoken of there. During this time of disobedience, during this time of disobedience, this 2,520 year period, but we got, we got to get the time right. They rejected Christ in the new, which was AD 70 is when they were destroyed from that time on. They're in disobedience. They're in punishment. So this is now the time of the Gentiles. It's the time of the uh, church age, the dispensation of grace where Israel is under punishment. Okay, so a couple things going on there. We don't want to get too deep in that right now. But, Marty, yes. How long did it take you to learn all of that so you could just work that out? I don't that know. I, fantastic. Well, good. Praise the Lord. Okay. And, and uh, now you got me off on my thoughts, but that's okay. Thank you. Back to reading. Yeah, back to reading. Okay, um, let's hear. During this time of disobedience, those who were once far off, the Gentiles have been brought near. We have obtained the mercy of Christ, which would otherwise have gone directly to Israel, thus ushering in the kingdom age. Remember I said that if they had accepted Christ, all of those Old Testament promises in the new covenant would have been fulfilled immediately. Christ would have sat on the throne. Israel would have been in charge of the nations, and that would have been it. The Gentiles never would have come into the Gentile church age in the saving grace that we have obtained, the mercy, okay? But God knew that they would reject him. They knew that, and he did not waste these 2,000 years while they're under punishment, just letting the nations go around the world. He brought in salvation to the Gentiles, okay? And at the same time, he did not replace Israel with those Gentiles. 
This is the flaw of replacement theology. I bring it up every time because you can look at it a little bit differently and it clears up a little more every single time. They are still his people. They are under punishment as those calculations I just gave you. They are in the land now, but they're still not right with him. So we're working towards that, but they are back for his reasons. Okay, so here we go. Um, in the church age, this is why Paul says, oh, wait a minute. No, that's yes. Um, uh, but God knowing they would reject Jesus ordained an entirely separate dispensation during their time of being cast off. It is known as the church age. This is why Paul says that through their disobedience, we have obtained mercy. And yet, at the same time, the old covenant guaranteed that they, as a collective whole, would remain beloved of God regardless of their obedience or disobedience. This was because of the promise made to the fathers. We saw that already, which is actually recorded in the covenant. It's recorded there, especially Leviticus 26, but it's in Deuteronomy 7. It's in all these other places, even in the books of the prophets, Isaiah, etc. It's always there being mentioned again, but along with it being mentioned that I'm going to keep my promises to you, it also says that these promises include punishment. They include the punishment of the curses. Okay, so um, it's uh, through their disobedience we've obtained mercy. The Old Covenant guaranteed that they as a collective whole would remain. This was because of the promises made to the fathers. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Yes, when America has a disobedient president, we're going back to that symbolism now. There are provisions for doing what? Impeachment, yes, and removal of that individual. But these don't affect the status of the office at all, do they? The office of president doesn't change one iota if we impeach a president, okay? Doesn't change anything about the, the, the structure of the U.S. Constitution. The law, the Constitution is still given and it still says exactly what's to go on. It's not going on, and so what are we going to do? We're going to get rid of this guy, okay? That's the, the provisions that the Constitution gives, all right? When Israel is collectively disobedient, there are provisions for punishment, exactly the same thing. You have impeachment in the Constitution. You've got Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, which are the provisions for taking care of the disobedience in the office that they have been charged with. But these don't affect the status of the promises made to the fathers. The Constitution says that the office of president is this, and it doesn't change, okay? It's the people in the office that are being changed or, or being affected by it. Again. Just as the Constitution is fixed and unchanging, not an organic document as liberals say nowadays, there's nothing organic about it. The word is means is, okay? Everything about the U.S. Constitution is. It is set, and there are ways of amending it, but until that happens, it is. That's why it's such an offense what is going on in the nation right now with the Second Amendment. They say, well, we, we need to get rid of the Second Amendment. Good! Go ahead and submit the paperwork to get rid of it. It is the law. Until the law changes, it is the law. That's all there is to it. I have no problem if they come out and they amend the U.S. Constitution and say, what is it, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, the President, and then two-thirds of the state, and it's not, those aren't the exact numbers, but it's like that. It's defined in the Constitution how to amend it. If they do that, then we can all hand in our guns because we will be the offenders. But until then... The people that are saying you don't have a right to your gun are the offenders, okay? That's what's going on in this nation right now. We have laws that stand just as God's law stands towards Israel. 
Okay. Try and argue that is word. Is, yeah. It was one of the people in the office of president, I think. Yes. Is doesn't really mean is. So anyway, the, it's not an organic document. Even when the president changes in relation to this document, so it is with Israel and the promises of God. The promises don't change, but the people may change in relation to them. Understanding this concept should keep the church from error, should, but the churches fail to grasp it, and in many denomination, denominations, she still fails to grasp it. And with it as obvious as the nose on your face, now that they're back in the land, they still fail to grasp it. What is written of Israel is binding, and it is unchanging. Unlike the U.S. Constitution, which can be amended, I just said there is an amendment process. God's word is eternal. Thank you. Written in the heavens. We err when we, that, by the way, that verse has nothing to do with the King James Version. Have you seen that one where people use that and they say God's word is eternal in the heavens and the King James Version is God's inspired word. So they make this sudden, yes, I've seen that many, many times. Go King James only sites. So they co-opt a verse from the Old Testament 3,000 years before the, uh, the uh, King James Version was translated, and they say, see? Insane. Crazy. Anyway, just a little side thing, because it's talk about context, folks. Um, so uh, the promises of God don't change, but the people may change. All right? Uh, God's word is eternal. We err when we ascribe the change which has taken place in Israel to the covenant. When we do so, several things happen. One, we misinterpret God's plans for the nation of Israel. Okay? Two, we misunderstand the church's place in redemptive history. Three, we ascribe, whether we admit it or not, fault to God's covenant instead of where it rightly belongs, which is Israel. And by doing so, four, we call into question God's integrity by indicating that his covenant is not reliable. Those are the effects of believing in replacement theology. Let me read them again, just so you understand that. One, we misinterpret God's plans for the nation of Israel. That's obvious. That's obvious when you're reading the Old Testament. Nobody would say, nobody would ever read the Old Testament and stop at the end and say anything except those promises are eternal. You would never come to that conclusion, ever. Okay, so two, we misunderstand the church's place in redemptive history because we know that it's eternal and all of a sudden the church comes in. We say the church has replaced them. We misunderstand what God is doing. And then three, we ascribe, as I said, whether we admit it or not, fault to God's covenant instead of where it rightly belongs because his covenant has no fault. It's the people in the covenant that have the fault, just like the president that has fault in the office of president and needs to be impeached. And by doing so for... We call into question God's integrity by indicating that his covenant isn't reliable. When in fact, he says, I will never break this covenant with them, ever. Okay, Paul is showing us this sequence of events for a reason and asking us to pay heed to it. If God isn't reliable towards his beloved but disobedient people Israel, he will not be reliable to us, to his objects of mercy, during this point in history either. God forbid that this would ever be true. Life application. God doesn't change. Do we have time? For, yes, we have time for one more. God doesn't change. God's word is a reflection of who he is. God's word is unchanging and reliable, just as God is unchanging and reliable. Stand firm in your faith and in the surety of the words of scripture. 
That's why we come to Bible class, is to learn these things so that we're not like Charlie Garrett waffling on a sea of bad doctrine for all of those years. And, and the people that are sitting in churches that don't go to Bible studies and they hear a life application sermon to get them until Monday morning when their life falls apart again, right? Go to Bible class, learn it. If you can't, watch online. There are lots of good teachers out there. Just, oh, I, it, it's so important to understand these fundamental truths. 1131 and we'll be done. Yes. Boston. Boston. You checked. Ah, oh, the U.S. Constitution is parked in Boston. I'm glad I said that first then. Oh, I feel so good that I thought somebody's checking that right now. And oh, yes, Boston Harbor. That, that, look, my hair's standing up on that one. Thank you. So they, too, have now become disobedient in order that they, too, may now receive mercy. Oh, so he's speaking about the church. We, we're disobedient. We need mercy, right? Because we've replaced Israel. Right? I mean, see how stupid it is? Do you see how dumb it is when people say that we have... Because if that's the case and we're disobedient, then why should anybody listen to us? Right. That's just like the Jehovah's Witness. My friend Mike up there uh, in New Jersey, he uses that when a Jehovah's Witness come on. They say we're Israel. And he says, well, what does it say in Romans eleven thirty one? And they read it and he says, why should I listen to you? Closes the door. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Think yeah. it through. Does yours end there? Does mine end where? Where I, where I just stop? Does yours Yes, end but it, it, mine is actually a continued sentence from 30 and 31. Yours is a beginning. It begins with yeah. so. I'm going to read them both together and you'll okay, see okay. this. No, okay, no, no, no. no. Oh, Here it goes. Oh, go ahead. So they, have, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Oh, okay. See, mine ends there. You've got more. Yeah, so, I do. yeah, okay. Well, that's that would be the NU text. So, uh, the Alexandrian. So, there you go. Anyway, verse 31, we're leaving off the end part because I don't have a commentary on it, but um <laughs> the uh, the reciprocal of verse 30 is now given. I'm going to read them together because mine it, it isn't a separate sentence. For as you once uh, were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. Okay, one thought is just broken into the uh, opposites, okay, the reciprocal. I forgot to pray when we opened. Don't let me forget to do that. Don't let me forget, if you see that I do that, because I get excited with all these other things, and I don't want to, you know, we want to ask the Lord's blessing on this, uh, this, this uh, time here. Okay, um... Uh, the reciprocal, placing both verses side by side, will provide you the clarity. I just read it, so I'm not going to read it again. Um, the disobedience of the Jews led to mercy upon the Gentiles. That's verse 30. However, this isn't the end of the story, as so many in the church seem to believe. Instead, Paul says, even so. The Greek word for even so indicates in this manner. And so, in the same way as verse 30 was explained concerning the Gentiles, it can now be shown true with the Jews in this manner. These also, Paul says, have now been disobedient. In the ages past, God's mercy was shown on the Jews, calling them and giving them his covenant and its associated care, protection, and blessings. Everybody got that? You've all read the Old Testament? You know that that's true. All right. During this time, the Gentiles were mostly excluded from that favored status. We had Rahab the harlot come in. We had Ruth, you know, come in from Moab. And every once in a while you hear of a Gentile coming in, but it's not any big number by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Um, the, however, the covenant contained stern warnings for disobedience. 
There was a first exile, which was intended as chastisement for correction. This was a 70-year exile to Babylon. However, disobedience followed again after restoration. Christ was rejected and crucified. Everybody got that? Okay, so this is the logical progression. And even after the resurrection, the ultimate proof of his messiahship, he was rejected. A second time of punishment would come. Isn't that funny? I, the first that I, the calculation that I said a minute ago, it's here. I wish I'd read ahead. I don't have to read it now, but I'll read it anyway. How long would this punishment last? The Bible tells us specifically, and it's what I said earlier. Go back and watch that. Ezekiel 4, 430 days, etc., etc., okay? However, there is a caveat found in the verses of Leviticus 26. In verse 18, it says, and after all this, if you don't obey me, I will punish you seven times over. There you go. Okay, so then I go through the rest of the calculation. All right, so we don't have to read that. That's good. Um, this doesn't mean that Israel is again in a state of obedience now that they're restored, but that God was faithful in that through, through mercy, this is Paul's quote, through mercy shown to you, they may obtain mercy. Okay, the church age has been a time of God's mercy upon the Gentiles during Israel's time of rejection. Now the church age is nearing its end. Despite what people say that we're ushering in the kingdom and everything's getting better and better, obviously that's not true. The church age is going to end. And after that, the world is going to really devolve into seven years of heck on earth. Okay, the church age is nearing its end and God is readying Israel to take its rightful place in redemptive history. The kingdom age anticipated by the apostles in Acts 1 verse 6. We all know, Lord, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? He didn't answer it. He says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, implying that it's coming. It's just that it's not coming right then. And what did he do? He went up to heaven. But he never said that it wasn't happening. You misunderstood the Old Testament. You misunderstood Isaiah the prophet speaking of a millennial reign where the law will go forth from Zion. That is all wrong. You completely got it wrong. He didn't say that. He just said it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Israel of today is not an aberration, but a part of God's perfectly detailed and perfectly executed plan for the people of the world. Life application will close two minutes early today. We don't need to guess or to speculate about fulfilled matters of redemptive history. They are exactingly and precisely detailed in God's word. What we need to do is keep our noses in that word and draw out what he has so meticulously conveyed to us. Read your Bible. There you go. Okay. That's, uh, yes. Is it possible that people decide to do determines God's timing? It's possible that God knew that we would do the things that we were going to do. And so my answer would be yes. God has already got this figured out. And it's obvious from the precision of the timing that he is affecting history. Okay, I'm going to say this in Sunday sermon. This will help you a little bit. And it'll also give them something that they can sleep through for a couple minutes. But God is everywhere. All right. Air is all between us, right? But we can't see it. Just because we can't see it, we know that there's air here. God is everywhere. He is everywhere now. He's everywhere at the beginning and he's everywhere at the end. Therefore, he is influencing everything that's going on. But I believe 100% in free will. That doesn't mean that God doesn't like the prophets. He, he influenced their will in order to give a scripture. If he wants something to happen in history, 
he will affect it so that it happens. He might make an earthquake happen over here, which will move a family over there. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so God is completely in control of every single molecule and every atom that is in this universe. But he knows the inevitable outcome of everything, including your choice for Jesus, my choice for Jesus, his rejection of Jesus, whatever, okay? Included in that he knew that the church would last a certain amount of time and it would fail and then it would need to be reformed and Martin Luther would come. And then he knew that the churches would develop in this way. This country would have its own church, the Lutheran church. And this church would say, we don't want that. We want to be free from the, the government. He knew the outcome of this. So the answer to your question is yes. He responds to what he knows will happen. He doesn't need to interfere in those things. But there are times where he needs to interfere to ensure that something happens. Like I said, he might make a wave, push a boat a little further, and it lands on this island instead of this island. He can control those things, and he does. I am absolutely certain of that. You know, we see, we hear of people suddenly, great things happening in their life. Uh, um, the girl that I was talking about that um, uh, came to my neighbor, my neighbor called, and he said that his sister knew the Lord. She called him up one day, and she says, I don't understand Somebody walked up to me and was telling me about Jesus, and then somebody walked up to me and was telling me about Jesus, and somebody had me a Bible and said, you need to read this. All of a sudden, all of these things are happening in her life. It can't be by chance. The Lord was directing her to come to him. But there are times where I'm sure somebody just says, I need Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So to answer your question in short, the answer is yes, but with the caveat, right? He will direct when he determines it's necessary. Does that help? Good. Okay. Heavenly Father. We do thank you so much for the wonderful hand that you have upon us. You are directing history. You are completely sovereign over all things. You know all things. We would never deny that. And yet, I would at least personally believe that you allow us to make free will choices as nations, as individuals, as groups of people, as churches, as to what color to paint the, the wall, whatever. We thank you for that. We thank you that you do allow us to make choices, and those choices will be in accord with your will Always, even if they're the wrong thing to do. We know that with Joseph and his brothers throwing him into a pit. You are aware of these things and what we intend for evil, you turn for good because you are great and you are glorious. We can't understand it all, but we can look at it and we can see that it is true, that it is perfectly evident. The book of Esther shows us this as well, how something so little can turn into something that completely turns around and saves your people. Lord, thank you for this assurance that we have that even when things are terrible in our lives, we are facing goodness because you are there directing them as well. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me back this up here. And let's see your break. But don't.